is Due South, broadcasting from the American Tobacco Historic District in downtown Durham. Hey, I'm Jeff Tiberi. It's Friday, and that, of course, means it is time for our North Carolina roundup of news, politics, and general shenanigans. Glad to be joined in the studio by Mary Helen Jones, political reporter, Spectrum News, as well as Zach Eanes, reporter with Axios Raleigh. On the line from Washington, D.C., is Danielle Battaglia, Capitol Hill correspondent for the News and Observer. And joining us from Charlotte is Steve Harrison, political reporter at public radio station WFAE. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. All right. A full rundown to try to get to on this Friday. But before we get into much of that, some notable sounds of our week. Photo IDs are required to cast in-person and absentee ballots. You know, I had one gentleman come in and say, yeah, I've, I've got all of these IDs. Are these acceptable? And I say, yeah, sir, you got plenty that are acceptable. Well, I want to get the free one you have, too, because I don't want any problems when I get to the polling place. Nine months till the election, people! And the exciting part is we already know our candidates. It's drumroll, please. These guys! <laughs> Donald Trump may be zeroing in on a particular North Carolina Republican to take over the RNC. We are the beacon of hope for democracy. When we step away, who fills the void? Charlotte, the inexplicably pregnant stingray, is due to give birth. U.S. Senator Tom Tillis making his latest case for America, spreading democracy and dollars around the globe. We'll talk about who might be replacing Ronna McDaniel as the national head of the RNC and a pregnant stingray. I swear this is an interesting story. We'll get to all of that. But first, the primary and early voting. And we're into it. It's underway. It feels maybe, and I'm showing age here, a little bit like 8 p.m. on New Year's Eve, like anticipation is coming. We're kind of into it. Uh, Mary Helen, get us started, please. What stood out to you this week as early voting kicked off on Thursday? North Carolina has 17 days of early voting, ran runs from yesterday to March 2nd, a few days before Election Day. And I was at John Chavis Park in downtown Raleigh. There were a steady trickle of people, I would say. Not a lot of people coming in, but people were coming in. People were excited to vote, excited to knock that off their to-do list. It also only took about five minutes. So early voting is a great time to vote if you don't have a lot of time. But this is also the first election for a lot of people who did not have municipal elections mm-hmm. to have that voter ID with them. The poll, the chief judge I spoke to said everything went smoothly for them. But I think it'll be interesting when we get closer to Election Day and there are maybe more people voting who maybe aren't as involved who might not know about that voter ID. Steve Harrison on the line with us from Charlotte. Uh, I believe Charlotte had kind of the biggest offering of an election with voter ID Uh, last year in 2023. There were no major notable issues to speak of, at least that I remember from your reporting and other uh, reporting. What uh, should we know about voter ID as it moves to the uh, uh, statewide uh, ramifications here in 2024? Yeah, I I think that the the main thing is that uh, you know, the, the, the list of required IDs is, is pretty broad that will, will be acceptable 
And, and the other thing is that if you show up and you don't have one of those, you are in theory still allowed to, to, to cast a ballot, to cast a provisional ballot. You fill out this reasonable impediment form. Um, and one of the things you can check on the form is that uh, you lost your ID or it was misplaced. I mean, that you forgot it. You're still allowed to vote. Um, and, you know, I think what's going to be kind of interesting as we, we move into this big election with a lot of people voting, a lot of, you know, kind of fewer A voters or, or, or more infrequent voters is is how the uh, it polling places, how people kind of steer voters who don't have an ID. You know, in Mecklenburg County, we had two elections with it, a, prim- a municipal primary and a municipal general. There were really no problems. I think there was a sense that voters were really encouraged to, you know, helped and nudged along to fill out the form to have their ballots cast. I think it'll be interesting whether that happens statewide. Okay. We'll, we'll see. Interesting. Uh, Danielle Battaglia is also with us, joining us from Washington, D.C., as she often does on our North Carolina News Roundups. Danielle, what are you tracking from kind of the outside looking in as it pertains to the North Carolina primary here in the, in the next week or so? Like what is top of mind for you as early voting uh, began just yesterday? Well, top of mind for me is making sure there are, I think, 64 candidates in the congressional races. And I want to make sure that everybody knows who is who and who to vote for. There's only 15 Democrats out of all of those. Uh, The one thing with voter ID that I'm fascinated with is how much we've talked about it over the years, whether we're going to have voter ID or not. And so I worry that our uh, listeners won't know whether or not it's legitimate this time around. A, f- a fair point, an interesting point. Uh, Zach, feel free to jump in here I- if you would like. I think as it pertains to uh, the photo identification, as Steve points out, there are a range of uh, choices that are available to prospective voters. Uh, and it will be interesting to see if Republicans try to curtail that in any way here in 2024. Steve, this is something you've paid a little bit of attention to uh, this this week. Uh, House Speaker Tim Moore wants to potentially change the the framework, the parameters of voting. I'm skeptical of this from the get, that this is actually something he wants to do, more something he wants to talk about. But tell us what uh, Speaker Moore and perhaps others are, are thinking about or talking about doing. Form where if you don't have a photo ID, you can just check a box and say that you misplaced it and then you still get to vote. And the Speaker said that, well, that's kind of a huge loophole. And, and uh and he wants people to show that ID, feels like it's it's just kind of not really in the spirit of the law. And then the other thing he floated was the the idea of uh, restricting or cutting down the number of days of early voting. North Carolina is on the, the high side nationwide in mm-hmm. terms of the number of days we have, um, you know, I think clearly the, the, the changes to early voting would be the most, if, if that ever happens, would be the most significant. 17 days of early voting, if memory serves, uh, is less than what Georgia has. Uh, a few states do have more, but 17 days is a sizable offering. Listeners may remember that it's been about a decade since Republicans tried to roll back the 17-day early voting period to 10 days. Ultimately, that was struck down in federal court. And at several turns across the last decade, Republican legislators have tried to change, make some significant changes to uh, same-day registration and early voting and out-of-precinct balloting. And many of those changes have been halted in federal courts. But uh, the judiciary is a little bit more favorable 
to Republicans at this point. So it will be interesting to see uh, if these are proposals that uh, do jump up here in 2024. I'm going to move on unless there's anything you want to jump in with. No, Zach, go I, ahead. I just want to say that um, I think this early voting period is pretty exciting just because there's so few incumbents, um, especially on the Council of State races. I mean, there's no Roy Cooper at the top. So the governor races are flooded with candidates. The attorney general is going to be open. Um, and you know, there's a really interesting race between Jeff Jackson and Satana DeBerry, the Durham uh, district attorney. And I just think that, uh, you know, it feels like these races are a lot more competitive than maybe the last cycle and all the way down to even state Senate races. Uh, following locally, I think the Woodard, Mike Woodard uh, seat is really fascinating because you know, he's now run for mayor of Durham and now running again for for his position in the General Assembly. And he's lost a lot of local endorsements he previously had. So I think the Democrats, on one hand, are, are sorting their candidates in some really interesting ways. Um, and I think that the primaries are going to be just a lot closer than like maybe I thought they would be, you know, compared to last year, four years ago. So I have a theory I want to dangle out here, and I realize it's dangerous to get to one of my theories 10 minutes into a radio program, but we're going to try it. Uh, and I'd love for, for you all to just pick up on this, play with it, tell me why I'm crazy or, or whatever the case may be. Uh, and I don't have a – it's really not a fully formed theory, but it, it is as follows. If the presidential primary is really decided or looks like it's decided by the time folks vote on March 5th in North Carolina, what does that mean for turnout and what does that mean for – Trump candidates versus non-Trump candidates. What does that mean for really progressive Democrats versus, you know, just left-leaning uh, progressives? And I don't have any really and a fully formed theory on this, but I, I do wonder if in the absence of a competitive presidential primary on either side, that could potentially have some weird down-ballot impacts. Is that something that anybody has thought about, or do any of you want to build on that in any way? I'm going to turn to Danielle Battaglia first in Washington. Danielle, go ahead. It's something I've been talking a lot with uh, the people who are smarter than me in North Carolina. Um, and I don't think we all have a crystal ball, but I think we are very concerned about turnout this cycle because we do have our presidential races decided. We don't have a governor that's up for re-election. Um, and so while the races might look competitive, there's not the big names that will draw you in to vote. And so there is some concern about whether we will be down in with a uh, voting in this primary. Mayor Helen. In North Carolina, excuse me. You're good. North Carolina also has an open primary if you are right. unaffiliated. So yep. I'm interested to pay attention to the governor's primaries because there are going to be people voting, potentially people who identify as Democrats are unaffiliated voting in that governor's mm -hmm. race for the Republican primary. I I'd love to know, uh, we have like two sort of viral candidates in different ways. Mm. Uh, you know, Jeff Jackson has really activated an online base in some ways yep. um, on TikTok or, yep. you know, Twitter, even Reddit. Um, and then Mark Robinson seems to, you know, get news every time he opens his mouth. Um, so I, I'm like, I don't know whether those two actually have traction when it comes to bringing people in to vote. But right. I think it's something to watch just because I don't know if we've had like personalities like that um, in, you know, prominent races like this in, in the past. Um, so I'm, I don't know, yeah. but it's something I think to keep an eye on. It's going to be really interesting to see what turnout does here across the next two and a half weeks. We should have an indication uh, of those early voting numbers by the time we hit early March. Still to come, what did our panelists write about this week? Is Trisha Cotham's mother in trouble, electoral trouble that is? And what happened three decades ago when a certain iconic basketball player was the victim of theft? 
More ahead on Due South on WUNC. It's the North Carolina Friday News Roundup on Due South. I'm Jeff Tabiri. Michael Jeffrey Jordan celebrates his 61st birthday tomorrow. The GOAT, that's greatest of all time, grew up in Wilmington, graduated from Laney High School before matriculating to Carolina, where he was a national champion and two-time All-American. He later owned the Bobcats and the Hornets in Charlotte, of course. All of this you may very well know. What many of you, I suspect, are less familiar with is what happened 34 years ago this week. On Valentine's Day 1990, MJ was in Orlando to play a game against the Magic. Hours before the game, his red Chicago Bulls number 23 jersey was stolen. And the equipment manager did not have a backup 23 to offer Michael. So his airness wore number 12. It's the only time he did not wear either 23 or 45 in his professional career. And if you're wondering, Jordan went out, motivated by the slight, as he often did, and put up 49 points against Orlando. However, the Magic won in overtime, 135-129. Afterward, Michael Jordan said... That has never happened to me before. It's pretty irritating because you're accustomed to certain things and you don't like to have things misplaced. Close quote. That was Michael Jordan on having his jersey stolen 34 years ago this week. If you ever have a historical nugget, a story of North Carolina-related birthday that you would like us to try to weave into the North Carolina News Roundup, please send us an email, south at wunc.org. It is the Roundup here on WUNC. We've got Mary Helen Jones, Zach Eanes, Steve Harrison, and Danielle Battaglia with us trying to make some sense of what has happened here uh, in recent days. Danielle, you've spent some time reporting on the 6th Congressional District. Now, this includes your old stomping grounds and in and around Guilford County. And we're going to spend a little time talking about two different notable congressional districts, at least two here. Um, this is a district uh, in which uh, the current office holder, Democrat Kathy Manning, was gerrymandered out. So she's not running again. We've got an open seat. We've got a crowded field and a bit of a test of the Trump endorsement. So, Danielle, if you would, because you've been following it, take it there. Uh, take it from there, please. Okay. So um, that was a very interesting curveball that was thrown. Um, I don't even remember what the date was, but as everyone was filing to come into this race, you had some high-profile Republicans that we know their names, we've seen their names, and all of a sudden, Addison McDowell announces, I'm running for Congress, and I've got Donald Trump's endorsement, former President Donald Trump. And um, nobody really knew who Addison McDowell was. I shouldn't say nobody because people around him do. Obviously, his neighbors do. Um, He's from... (laughs) A he's small, a DC small town. Right? He was a lobbyist for Blue Cross Blue Shield and one other company in North Carolina. He resigned the, from being a lobbyist the day that he filed. So um, people in North Carolina who work in the General Assembly might have seen him. And then, you know, in the area also. As we think about Trump's endorsement of Addison McDowell, this Republican in the crowded 6th Congressional District that includes uh, areas in and around Greensboro, uh, this week, McDowell, uh, you know, posted a video of himself with the former president on X, formerly known as Twitter. Uh, what? Uh, just tell us about the litmus test here, uh, because I think we have a, you know, a, a proclivity to, to obsess a little bit over. Oh, what did Trump say? And is it is it going to matter in the uh, election here? How, how are you teeing that up or thinking about uh, the Trump endorsement? Well, it's interesting. I think this is the first commercial where I've seen Trump really, and obviously it's edited together from speeches, but also had Trump speaking next to Addison about 
um, why he endorsed him. But it's the first time I think I've seen a commercial where he's really with the candidate talking about the endorsement and why it mattered. Um, and so I think there is some clout there. What's interesting to me about this race is you've got candidates like Bo Hines, who has run in the 2022 cycle, had uh, Trump's endorsement previously. He's also running commercials showing himself next to the president. And it's been it's effective. I've talked to people who believe he has the endorsement of the president, even though he never says it because his image is in the commercial with him. That's the sixth congressional district. I'm going to touch briefly on the eighth. Feel free to uh, add anything or flesh out what I'm going to uh, uh, share with you here. Uh, This eighth district is Charlotte adjacent. It's also open as the incumbent Republican Dan Bishop is running for attorney general. Bishop is the presumptive nominee there, as there are no other Republicans in the uh, Republican attorney general field. As for the eighth, it has two leading GOP candidates, John Bradford, a state lawmaker, and Mark Harris, the former pastor who previously ran uh, unsuccessfully for Congress. Uh, That was a race uh, that was marred by an election fraud scandal. Regardless, uh, Harris is back, and this is going to be um, a, a, an expensive, already has been an expensive congressional race, uh, and it appears to be Harris and Bradford as the frontrunners. An interesting bit of context that I wanted to put out there as it pertains to these congressional races is that there are 14 in total. And come March 5th or March 6th, um, we're going to have uh, a, a clear winner in the November election, in 13 of the 14. So let me just try to unpack that or just say it a little more clearly. Because of gerrymandering and because these districts skew so heavily R or so heavily D, we will know on March 5th, barring death or some major unforeseen act of God, uh, who the winners will be in 13 of the uh, of the 14 congressional districts. Um, Steve Harris, I want to bring you back in as we think about that 8th congressional district. Um, could you expound a little bit on, on just what I was noting? We've got Bradford, we've got Harris, but these two have kind of taken a, a real focus toward one, one another uh, in recent days. Yeah, I, I think that it's a, uh, they, it's a, a five or six person race, but they have kind of decided that it's between each other. Uh, you know, Bradford is going to spend, I think you said $2 million of his own money that kind of instantly makes him a factor in the race. Mark Harris, of course, you know, was, has been on the ballot before and, and everyone knows. It. So they had a debate uh, a little over a week ago and they basically just, you know, talk to each other. If there were any kind of attacks or criticisms they had, they were directed at each other. Um, it's going to be interesting. Bradford is from Mecklenburg County. He doesn't live in the district. He doesn't really have any connection to the district. So all that money he's going to be spending is going to be to try and get his name out there and get people to know him. Um, I, I think it's just a fascinating race, whether voters there are willing to uh, give Mark Harris a second chance because you know, one thing, they never rejected him. I mean, they mm. have never, you know, he got the most votes back in that 2018 race. They've never repudiated him. That came from the state. Let's go second level there, Steve. And you covered this intimately, so please help me out with the context if I'm missing it. But back in 2018, there was this ballot harvesting scandal. The man at the center of it uh, has since passed away, but his name was McCray Dowless. And because of what transpired, and I don't know that we ever got the, the full, complete picture of this, but a new election was ordered. And Mark Harris, as you point out, who appeared to be the winner on election night, never actually went to Congress. Uh, How much is that ballot harvesting scandal and that election fraud, pardon me, and that election fraud uh, 
playing out or, or is it a part of this campaign? It's a huge part of the campaign. Um, like I said, in that debate uh, a little over a week ago, it was the first question asked. Bradford uh, directly criticized Harris for his role in it, um, said that he's misleading voters because Harris has kind of not apologized. He said that, look, uh, I was kind of the victim of a Democratic scheme to take the election. That's his view. Um, Bradford really challenged him on that. And there is a super PAC out of Washington that's running a really hard-hitting ad uh, on TV down here talking about uh, that Mark Harris you know, let his family down, let the voters down, et cetera. So a huge deal. This has not gone away, um, and it's kind of the key to Bradford's campaign. As a reminder, the threshold to avoid a second primary, a runoff primary, is 30% of the vote plus one. Do you dare forecast for us, Steve, just how close uh, you're thinking this eighth congressional race might be on the Republican side? That's a, it's going to be really fascinating. Like I said, we've got six candidates. Can, like you said, can someone get to 30 plus one? Um I think there's a pretty good chance at that. I, I, I just think the other four have not really broken through. Um, but but yeah, I, I just think this is it's just a great it's just a really fascinating story. And uh, um, uh, yeah, we're going to this will be the one I will be covering on election night and we'll be watching the closest. Redemption is messy and hard to begin with. Political redemption just seems to to have like this extra veneer, this extra like. I don't know, absurdness, right? Like, it's a little bit surprising that Mark Harris is back on the stage, yet it's totally unsurprising that Mark Harris uh, is back on the stage. North Carolina News Roundup here on Due South with uh, Steve Harrison, Danielle Battaglia, Zach Eanes, and Mary Helen Jones. Let's turn our attention back to Washington, where this week U.S. Senator Tom Tillis made a case on the floor of Congress for continued aid for Ukraine and Israel. China is watching. Why am I so focused on this vote? Because I don't want to be on the pages of history that we will regret if we walk away. You will see the alliance that is supporting Ukraine crumble. Danielle Battaglia, uh, it seems pretty clear that clip why Tillis is making this argument. Uh, Tell us uh, a little bit more about the case he made this week and how that vote went uh, in the U.S. Senate uh, as it pertains to aid for Israel and Ukraine. So this is something I think he's been fighting for basically since the war broke out in Ukraine. He has been a huge proponent of helping Ukraine and making sure they have the supplies to fight off Russia. Now we've got the added level of Israel also being attacked And um, what's been going on behind the scenes is that some members of the Republican Party also want to tie this into border security. So uh, senators like Ted Budd, who represents North Carolina, have said before we fix our border or before we help other countries, we need to fix our border. I thought um, our national security communications uh, spokesman John Kirby put it really well where he said, if we don't pass this aid, it's telling our adversaries and our allies that we can't count on America. And that's kind of the thread that Senator Tillis has been telling people is we need to pass this aid or we're telling people they can't count on us. And that's going to hurt us with our relationships on the on the uh, international stage going forward. This aid package, which Tillis supported moved through the Senate. What uh, what is the likelihood in the uh, House? Well, they went home 
yesterday without doing anything. They're coming back on um, two days before, I want to say it's the 29th, but I don't have my calendar in front of me. And they are immediately going into, are we having a government shutdown? My common refrain on the show, uh, because we are once again needing to fund the government. And um, House Speaker Mike Johnson's not happy with the bill. He wants border security in there, as do a lot of the Republicans. And so he's basically said it's dead on arrival. Um, there's been some talk about putting forward a discharge petition, which would basically mean a majority of the House has gone around him and said, we're forcing this onto the floor. Whether that can be effective or not, I don't know. I am really fascinated that Representative Greg Murphy, who represents North Carolina, has said that he is willing to work on a discharge petition. Hmm, that's interesting. And Murphy represents uh, the eastern, much of the eastern swath of uh, North Carolina. Briefly on uh, North Carolina's junior U.S. Senator, please, Danielle, Ted Budd did not vote in favor of this. What did he have to say uh, 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 about why? He was he was really focused on border security and saying we need to uh, get the border under control before we help any of our allies overseas. And until our borders fixed, we can't do anything basically anywhere else that, that we need to make America safe first. And then once we do that, we are in a p- better position to help our allies. Some gamesmanship as well as, uh, dare I call it, some dysfunction uh, continuing to play out in Washington, D.C. Uh, Mary oh, yes. Helen Jones, you continue to report on some problems here in North Carolina within the scope of the foster care system. There's a shortage of homes as we think about children who are in need. Uh, give us the update, please. What's going on here? So over the past month, the state legislature oversight committees have been hearing from different agencies, different groups, looking at some issues that they might be looking into in the short session. Earlier this month, they heard from the North Carolina DHHS about the current status of uh, social services. And it is not good. There are about, I think last year, 15,000 children spent at least one night in a foster care system. And I spoke with Foster Family Alliance, which is a statewide group, and they told me that pre-COVID, we had about 7,400 foster families. Last year, that was down to 6,300. So that's 6,300 licensed foster homes, families for more than 15,000 foster children. So there has been some legislation passed in the state legislature there. introducing new licenses so families can have more children in their homes, but they're also opening it up where children can be moved across the state. So Gail Osborne with Foster Family Alliance told me that there are children who are living in the western part of the state. There aren't homes available. They might be moved to the eastern side of the state. So it's just so much disruption for these children going into the foster care system. And it seems like the consensus that I heard from DHHS as well as Foster Family Alliance, the foster family I spoke to, is the need for funding for local DSS Mm -hmm. and the fact that there are these staff turnovers and that has, it's a very draining field to be in and not the highest pay. So you have this turnover, which impacts caseload, impacts the children, impacts the biological families, the foster families, which then causes burnout for foster families as well. So it's a situation that the legislature has been taking some action on, but there is still a long way to go. A couple of points here. I want to keep, I have several follow-ups here, but you mentioned 7,400 foster care homes or foster care families down to 6,300. That's a dip. I mean, these are small Mm -hmm. numbers as we think about hundreds of thousands of of families or millions of uh, families across the state. 
but that's a drop of about 15%. Is that because of licensure? Is that because of the cost of taking on another child? Like why, if, if we know, has there been a dip in more than a thousand homes who are open to foster children? The foster parent I spoke with, her opinion, she's been in this for 10 years, is that really COVID had such an impact. And there were families that were had costs to deal with with their own families and also were afraid to be letting children they didn't know into their homes. And so I think they are definitely starting to pick back up. Last year, 6,300. This year, it's 7,100. Mm-hmm. So we're still below those pre-COVID levels, but okay. that's a big jump in families being um, licensed. The state legislature did also increase monthly stipends mm-hmm. to help those families because the economy, families yeah. are having to take on a lot of costs for these children. I've done a little reporting on this, not recently, going back a couple of years, but I want to underscore something you just said and and please build on it, which is moving children from the western part of the state to a different region. And I think for anybody with children, they'll go, oh, yeah, like that's got to be that's got to be hard moving a kid to a different part of the state. But it's not only that. When when you're talking about kids in foster care, you're often talking about a community of children who uh, are, see, are receiving some sort of therapy or help. Sometimes there there's a, a, a medication or a prescription piece to this. And you move them to a different part of the state. And not only is it a brand new part of the state, but you have to identify different uh, members as part of their so-called tribe, people who are helping them along the way. And that's just a whole other set of challenges, as I recall from some of my reporting. I spoke with Gail Osborne, who is the executive director of Foster Family Alliance. She is much more well-versed in this than I am. And she was explaining to me children moving homes. And I believe through the Medicaid system, there is some kind of funding help that these children are able to get. And if they get a new caseworker, if they're moved to a new county, that process starts all over again. So it's just a cyclical starting over and children being caught in the middle of it. Mary Helen Jones is a reporter uh, with Spectrum News. Zach Eanes is also here on our Friday News Roundup. Uh, Zach, you, uh, uh, among several uh, interesting stories this week, had one that is titled How to Fix Downtown Raleigh. Uh, tell me, I didn't know it was broken, I guess, but you know, Fayetteville Street, downtown Raleigh, efforts to try to renew some um, foot traffic here. What's the latest? Yeah, I think um, if you ask leaders of Raleigh, business owners in downtown Raleigh, a lot of them would say that parts of Raleigh do need to be fixed. Um, you know, the narrative for the downtown core is really flipped after the pandemic. You know, before the pandemic, all we talked about was, oh, wow, look at the surging downtown we're seeing in the Triangle Companies are moving in. There's a restaurant opening every weekend. Um, to after the pandemic, I mean, pedestrian traffic is still it's only recovered 78 percent of what it was in 2019. Yeah. And a lot of that is there's just empty offices everywhere you look. Um, a lot of the growth that we saw in downtown were you know tech companies opening up shop, and a lot of that work is being done remotely now. Um, so you know. The city, you know, downtown is is not as vibrant as it used to be, at least on the Fayetteville Street side. Glenwood South, the warehouse district, you know, on the western side are doing fine. But, you know, downtown Raleigh's also struggled from a retail standpoint because, you know, places like, you know, the Village District, North Hills, the Fintons of the world aren't very far away. And people in the Triangle are used to driving. Um, So, yeah, the the city hired a consultant using some money from uh, ARPA, ARPA funding. Um, and uh, these consultants put together, you know, sort of 10 recommendations. Um, and basically, you know, looking at like the Fayetteville Street District and even where all the statewide stuff, it's, it's bland. So they're really trying to liven it up and, you know, add more areas to eat on the street, more color, more art, more performances, things that bring you down every day. Zach Eanes from 
Axios Raleigh is here on the North Carolina News Roundup on Due South. We'll roll along in just a minute here on WUNC. Welcome back. It's Due South on listener-supported WUNC. That is a bit of the latest track from Queen Bee, Beyonce, titled Texas Hold'em. Playing on that track is North Carolina's own Rhiannon Giddens. Uh, Zach Eanes of Axios Raleigh, tell us a little bit more about this country track from Beyonce and Rhiannon. Yeah, I think um, people have been wondering if Beyonce was going to go country for a while. You know, she's wearing cowboy hats a lot <laughs> recently, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, during the Super Bowl, she had a Verizon commercial, I believe, and it sort of hinted that there was going to be new music and obviously the internet freaked out and ran immediately to check her social media pages and lo and behold she dropped two songs one of them being texas hold'em which starts off with a bit of banjo which is not what you expect on a beyonce track and find out a few hours later it's north Carolina native rhiannon giddens uh on it and uh she's pretty remarkable artist uh won a macarthur genius grant won a pulitzer last year for an opera she wrote with the carolina performing arts um and she's done a lot in expanding the public conscience about, you know, the African-American origins of the banjo, mm-hmm. you know, what role, you know, black people in North Carolina had in folk music growing up. Uh, and, you know, it's just it's pretty remarkable that she's, you know, she was already very influential. But I think performing with Beyonce is just, you know, the yeah. feather in her cap at this point. It, she's she's part performer, but well beyond that part artist. Uh, part historian. I mean, she is a, a, a wonderful and fascinating North Carolina figure. I mean, beyond North Carolina, but North Carolina born and bred. Uh, it's a great track if people have not heard it. Uh, Texas Hold'em uh, and Beyonce, as well as Rhiannon Giddens, uh, formerly of the Carolina Chocolate Drops. It is the North Carolina News Roundup here on Due South. We've got Mary Helen Jones, political reporter, Spectrum News, Zach Eanes, reporter with Axios Raleigh, Danielle Battaglia, Capitol Hill correspondent for the News and Observer, and Steve Harrison, political reporter with member station WFAE down in Charlotte. Before the break, we were talking about some of the efforts in downtown Raleigh to rejuvenate foot traffic and help commerce this uh, four years or so after the pandemic really threw major challenges and and heaps of sand into the gears of uh, economic drivers um, throughout some of these urban centers. In Charlotte, uh, things have returned uh, to an extent as well. And there have been uh, efforts to create open alcohol districts and places where people can come and gather and convene. And that has led to some new ordinances trying to crack down on public intoxication and public urination. Who could have thought that this might have followed? But uh, Steve Harrison, if you would uh, take it from there for us, please. Uh, some new ordinances in Charlotte. Uh, what more can you tell us? Yeah. So, so Jeff, what happened was a few years ago, the General Assembly kind of passed its own criminal justice reform that said ordinances in cities and towns are by default misdemeanors. They're not criminal. If you want to make them criminal, you have to opt in. 
And so at that point, Charlotte allowed several ordinances like public drinking, urination, defecation, et cetera, many of these, to become non-criminal offenses, which means the police can only just write you a citation. And so in downtown Charlotte or uptown, as we call it, um, there has been an increasing uh, problem, many homeowners say, of of people, many of, whom, many of whom without homes are drinking in parks and going to the bathroom in parks and near their homes, et cetera, et cetera. And so the city council this week moved to recriminalize them. And it was an incredibly divisive issue because there were a lot of people who said, look, you know, if you don't have a home, what are you supposed to do? Where are you supposed to go to the bathroom? Um, and then on the other side, you know, the city is trying to uh, rejuvenate its downtown, which has lost a lot of its luster after COVID. Um, so it was in a really, really emotional issue. Um, one of the, the kind of most divisive I've seen in, in Charlotte here in several years. Very interesting. Where does this go? So tell us what happened. I mean, in terms of what they have enacted and where does it go from here? Well, they essentially remade these ordinances criminal, which means that that the police can arrest someone for this. And so the city's view was, look, we, we, we don't want the police to make an arrest. That's the last resort. But there was a feeling that before in this two or three year period when these infractions were non-criminal, that the police really had no recourse. You could write someone a ticket, but if you don't have a house, you know, that, that doesn't really, you're not going to pay it. It doesn't really do much good. So um, there was this sense that the police need some enforcement ability. Now, the city, on the flip side, has pledged to try and build some public restrooms downtown. I mean, as we all know, across this country, you know, the United States just doesn't have public bathrooms. And so uh, the city has pledged to do that. It's pledged to have more outreach um, to help people without homes. But it's it's just, I think it's interesting because it's just across the country, downtowns are struggling to get back to where they used to be. Mm -hmm. And in Charlotte, this is kind of the, the latest chapter in that to try and, uh, people say, to bring back a, quote, quality of life. We're talking about uh, Mecklenburg County Municipal Government with Steve Harrison on the line from member station WFAE in Charlotte. Let's stick with local in Mech County. Steve, please tell listeners about Pat Cotham, mother to Tricia, and why uh, her race and uh, why she's an interesting character right now. Well, all right. So Trisha Cotham, of course, is the, the state representative who flipped from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party last year, giving the GOP a supermajority, um, a huge story and one that, you know, humiliated Mecklenburg Democrats. It enraged them. Now, Trisha Cotham will be on the ballot in November, but Coming up in March, next month, her mother, Pat Cotham, who's a county commissioner, will be in the Democratic primary. So this will be the first opportunity for Democrats to weigh in on a Cotham. Um, Pat Cotham has been a longtime Democrat, was a delegate to the National Convention, um, has always won easily. But she's getting a bit of a cold shoulder this go around. Um, she lost an endorsement of the Black Political Caucus here. A LGBT group in Mecklenburg County uh, had given her, you know, had given her high scores before this year deemed her insufficient on their issues. So I, I think it's just fascinating to watch how whether voters here kind of separate mother from daughter um, or whether they're just whether Pat Cotham gets lumped in with Tricia and is 
may be pushed out of office. Has her policy position on things really changed or does this feel more like a vengeance element to you? I think there's a little bit of both. Uh, Pat Cotham has always been a bit of a moderate Democrat um, and the county has shifted left uh, over the last five or 10 years. So then, you know, kind of by default, Pat Cotham appears to be a little more in the center or the right. Um, so that's some of that. But but I, I think the vengeance thing, I think that there is an element of that and that people want some kind of retribution. They will certainly be voting in November, but this is an opportunity in three weeks to have that as well. Early voting is underway for that Super Tuesday, March 5th primary. Photo identification, as we talked about off the top, is indeed required to cast a ballot this primary. Uh, And we're interested if there are any questions from you, the listeners. We're working on a voter ID conversation for an upcoming episode, and we would like to know what you're wondering about as it pertains to that requirement of photo identification at the polls. Email us, please, do south at wunc.org, D-U-E, south at wunc.org. Well, North Carolina has uh, emerged from a sleepy electoral uh, state to a leading battleground here in the last 15 or 20 years or so. And we were reminded again this week of its place in the national stage. And that's because uh, the next national chairman of the Republican Party may very well uh, emerge here from North Carolina. Michael Watley is the executive director of the North Carolina GOP. Uh, and we want to play a bit of tape for you uh, that uh, comes from network television uh, from earlier this week. And uh, this, I think, speaks to the uh, ties between Watley and former President Donald Trump. Regardless of how uh, these lawsuits come out um, around the country uh, with the presidential race, uh, we do know that there was massive fraud that took place. We know that it took place in places like uh, Milwaukee and Detroit and Philadelphia. Again, that's Michael Watley, uh, and that was uh, a, a bit of tape from CNN earlier this week demonstrating uh, on some level uh, a, a keenness uh, to kind of spread the big lie and talk about Trump's election lies that were born uh, out of um, his defeat, Trump's defeat four years ago. Michael Watley uh, appears to be in a position to maybe take over for Ronald McDaniel as the RNC chairperson. Uh, former President Trump has backed Watley. I think I've given most of the context here, but what else are you or any of our panelists watching for here as it pertains to Watley and maybe taking a a step up in in significant prominence? Mary Helen? Well, I think it's also interesting that former President Trump also endorsed his daughter-in-law, Laura Trump, who is from North Carolina. So a lot of North Carolina attention. North Carolina is such an interesting state where traditionally votes Republican when it comes to national races like the um, president. But We have Governor Roy Cooper. We have very rarely had a Republican governor. So it's interesting to see what Watley has been able to do in those statewide races. I believe since he was in power, they have swept statewide judicial races, completely changing the makeup of the state Supreme Court. So he is going into this, obviously, with former President Trump's endorsement, but also a lot of experience traveling the state of North Carolina, looking at those statewide races. As a reminder, North Carolina fared very well in 2022. That was a midterm in which the Republican wave did not materialize nationally. Yet at the same time, Democrats didn't do too good here in North Carolina. Uh, Michael Watley is known as a pretty good fundraiser uh, and somebody who has, uh, as as Mary Helen points out, uh, helped oversee some real electoral success. The last time a Democrat won a statewide federal race here in North Carolina, 
16 years ago, 2008. So it'll be interesting to see uh, what happens with Michael Watley here in the, the, the days, maybe hours to come. Uh, all right, time to get a little lighter here on the North Carolina News Roundup on Due South. Uh, stick with me for a minute, uh, and then please, all your thoughts, all your feedback, all the things. A stingray living in an aquarium in the North Carolina mountains is pregnant. This not necessarily news. However, said stingray, named Charlotte, could deliver as many as four pups in the next two weeks. Aww. However, she hasn't had a male companion in her tank in, wait for it, eight years. There was at least one report this week that indicated the stingray may have been impregnated by a shark also living in the tank. However, a stingray expert says not so fast. According to an article in Yahoo News, Katie Lyons, a research scientist at the Georgia Aquarium, says that would be anatomically impossible. The DNA wouldn't allow for it. What has happened here is a process called, bear with me, I was never good in biology, parthenogenesis. Parthenogenesis, reading from the article now, quote, it's a type of asexual reproduction in which offspring develop from unfertilized eggs, meaning there is no genetic contribution by a male. Gosh, the mostly rare phenomenon can occur in some insects, fish, amphibians, birds, and reptiles, but not mammals. Lyons says, I'm not surprised because nature finds a way of having this happen. I'm going to go just kind of next level here, and then I'm going to shut up. A female's egg fuses with another cell, triggers cell division, and leads to the creation of an embryo. The cell that fuses with the egg is known as a polar body. They are produced when a female is creating an egg, but usually the eggs aren't used. This is a wild story. You can't say nature finds a way without a crisis thinking about dinosaurs coming back from all of this. I, I can't see horses change sexes. If they don't have Ooh, a suitable yes. partner. Yeah, so the I fact that this I, yeah. is happening to a marine animal is, okay. you know. You're unsurprised, that's Mary what, Jones. Oh, I'm surprised. shocked. <laughs> I am, I'm anxiously awaiting this birth. I am paying full attention. It is It is bizarre. Um, and it's, it's. Uh, I mean, this is, I feel like this is as big as like a royal birth at this point uh, <laughs> to find out what happens. But uh, I think maybe this is uh, why we should have aquariums so we can all learn more about, you know, nature around us, get people interested. You can't say this has not been... Uh, Good for the parthenogenesis business. <laughs> you you know? said it better so. than I did. Uh, and this, uh, I guess, a little bit of context here. So the tank, we're not talking like, a, you know, a small tank you see in a dentist's office. This is a 22,000-gallon tank. I think it's like the size of a small shipping container. I think that's what I read. Uh, it's up in Hendersonville. So this stingray is thousands of miles from its natural habitat in California. Like there's, I guess there's some stingrays in North Carolina, but or off the North Carolina coast. Uh, and to your point, Zach, the the owners of this this facility have have just said, "Hey, this is a real teaching moment here," and they're leaning into it. And it's neat. They thought on they thought they were worried that the the stingray had a a tumor when they first saw her getting you know mm-hmm. big. But no, an ultrasound determined it was uh, pregnancy, even though there was no male. So Zach, you and I perhaps have been deemed useless uh, in the larger scheme of things. <laughs> Danielle and Steve, anything to add on Charlotte the stingray? Uh, well, you, you kind of just trumped me, but I was going to mm. say women are really impressive. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've got a couple moments left here on the Due South North Carolina News Roundup. I want to pinwheel it here and just get a sense from each of you briefly, 20, 30 seconds. What are you tracking uh, next week, something on the horizon for you. Steve Harrison, I'll start. What's on the uh, the news docket, the reporting docket for you next week? Um, you know, it would be our congressional races. Uh, the the Republican primaries, we've got three seats here that kind of pinwheel around Charlotte. Uh, we talked about the 8th District earlier. We've got the 10th District to replace Patrick McHenry. Those races are all heating up and getting very intense. So, that is really the biggest uh, the biggest story here in Charlotte. 
Danielle Battaglia, what are you watching next week? Like Steve, I'm also watching the congressional races, uh, really going to dive into the 13th district. There's 14 candidates running there, and that is hard for constituents to even know who to vote for there. And then the 6th district's not letting up, so I'm sure we'll be tackling them again and everyone else in between. Zach Eanes, what are you working on? What are you going to publish uh, you know, next few days? Yeah. It's it's not politics-based, but you know, here in the Triangle, and I could probably say this for Charlotte too, almost everywhere, we've built just an incredible number of apartments. And in the Triangle, we've built an incredible amount of lab space for biotech companies to fill. Now we have to go about actually filling all these things. Mm. And uh, I think it's going to have a really interesting economic impact on prices, on uh, how we recruit new companies to fill these spaces, and just, you know, frankly, on the future of this region. Yeah. Mary Hand. I'm interested in early voting numbers in general. The last presidential election we had was in 2020. So a lot of emphasis on early voting, absentee voting. So I'm interested to see what those numbers look like. Maybe a weekend people are comfortable waiting again for Election Day to stand in those lines. Early voting is underway, as we told you off the top today, the second of 17 days as we uh, barrel toward that Super Tuesday, March 5th primary. Big thanks to Mary Helen Jones, political reporter at Spectrum News, Zach Eanes, reporter with Axios Raleigh, Danielle Battaglia, Capitol Hill correspondent for McClatchy and Steve Harrison, political reporter at NPR member station WFAE in Charlotte. Thanks, y'all. Have a great weekend. I also want to say thanks to our cast of characters who helped to put together Do South each week. Aaron Kiever, executive producer. Producers Stacia Brown, Coldell Charco, and Rachel McCarthy. Our technical director is Denarius Thomas. And for my co-host and colleague, Leonita Inge, my name is Jeff Tabiri. We'll talk to you again Monday at 10.